0: people are not used to engaging with a black trans person who is empowered in themselves and their work when people do have an interface with black trans people it's often as like a service provider and you know black trans people are your clients or attendees of your program or they're not used to me saying these are the policies that i've run and have been signed by the governor or this is what I want to do for this fundraising strategy or for that. People are not used to that. They don't get to, to witness us in, in that space. And so um, there's ways in which it can be really difficult being Black and a woman and trans and young in a leadership role. Hey everyone, this is Micah Sigourney or Vivian Forevermore. Welcome to Stud Stories. This is our Queer Liberation episode, also known as Gay Pride. We have a special guest host. She was also the first guest on the pod, stud co-owner and good friend, Honey Mahogany.
1: Hey, Vivi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Honey. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad you're here to host this week. You are a co-founder of the Transgender District here in San Francisco, and we thought you would be an excellent host for our Compton's Cafeteria Riots episode.
1: I agree. I am a great guest host specifically for this episode. I think you'd be a great, a great guest host all of the time. A gay, please. a gay great, gay great. A gay great guest, guest host. host. S. <laughs> are you ready to do the intro? Sure, let's do it.
0: Take us away, honey mahogany.
1: Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. Through stories about the stud, we will talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We are going to talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started this podcast when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. This podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of The Stud Bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I say, The Stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement so they say. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers. On this episode, we are talking about the year 1966, when the stud first opened its doors, and also the year of the Compton's Cafeteria Riots. We have two conversations, one with Susan Stryker, genius historian and creator of the documentary film Screaming Queens, and another with Aria Saeed. With us today, we have trailblazer, cultural curator, and icon, Aria Saeed, the current executive director and co-founder of the Transgender District. Welcome, Ms. Saeed, and thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, just, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, so I've got some questions for you. I know some of these are things that I already know, but I want I want you to say them for our audience. Um, how long have you been in San Francisco?
0: Ooh, um, I moved to San Francisco in 2009, late 2009. So I guess a little over 10 years
1: now. Um, well, what brought you to San Francisco?
0: Basically, you know, I, yeah, I grew up in in Portland, Oregon. Um, I guess in a lot of ways I had somewhat of a normal upbringing. And I transitioned in high school. Um, And so my junior year at that time was living in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. And so I definitely felt like I was an alien walking around. And yeah, there were these like small moments of affirmations where people would be like, oh, you need to move to San Francisco. Like they'll accept you there. Mm. (laughs) I had graduated early. So in a lot of ways, college felt like the safest space. Um, And I went to college in rural Oregon, in southern Oregon. And so from uh, there, there were a lot of people, a lot of students um, who were from San Francisco or the Bay Area. Um, And they would be like, oh, my God, you have to come down with us like this weekend or that weekend. Or I would come to San Francisco and I just loved the idea of living in the big city. Um, I guess the big city by the bay. Yeah. Um, I needed hormones and <laughs> I couldn't afford um I couldn't afford hormones. And so people told me that in San Francisco, if you came, they'll give you free surgeries and free hormones.
1: And so you came to San Francisco looking to literally change your entire life and get on hormones and get your surgeries and get it for free.
0: Yeah, I also got into fashion school here. So,
1: oh Like, when you first came to San Francisco, what was your impression? What was your experience of the city?
0: Um, So when I first moved here, I um, moved to the Tenderloin. (laughs) At first, I lived on our um, Ellis and Polk.
1: Well, what was the Tenderloin like back, like, 10 years ago as compared to today?
0: The Tenderloin was just, it, it was very homey for me. Um... Like, I knew all the corner store owners, and I hung out in the Tenderloin, I lived in the Tenderloin, I worked in the Tenderloin. So it was the sort of the area of the city that I knew the most. I think uh, what was definitely different back then is homelessness looks very different back then. The resources and, and things are just just different. And when I had first moved there in particular, you know, I saw so many trans people walking around. And like, we all lived in the Tenderloin. And I feel like you still see that in some ways, but not nearly as much as before. A lot of our folks got displaced or, you know, had to move somewhere else. And so um, I definitely feel like that's a huge difference for me.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why we founded the Compton's, well, back then it was the Compton's Transgender Cultural District. It's been rebranded now. It's just the Transgender Cultural District. Keep it short and cute. Um, but... One of the reasons that we also founded that district was because of the Compton's Cafeteria riots. Um, Why do you think that those riots are still important today? Or do you think that they're important at all?
0: I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why we founded it was to preserve that specific cornerstone of history. Because I think it was definitely undervalued and, and, and the public needed to know that the first documented uprising of trans and queer folks happened in San Francisco um and yeah and that trans people have been continuously living in the neighborhood since the 1920s and you know all the queer bars used to be there like I think people needed a piece of that culture and I think that was important I think it's still relevant today especially when we're thinking about pride but I also think that You know, a huge part of our advocacy was just that culturally trans people have been living in this area and and we had the densest population of trans people here and yet, you know, so many of our folks have an immense amount of disparity and like unhoused and uh, lack of resources and um, and employment or, you know, pipelines economic advancement and and it's just it's been consistent for so long that it became so normal and i think part of it was we were sort of fighting for it to not be normal anymore and for it to be like a radical solution that Mm -hmm. disparity yeah i think the comptons cafeteria riot plays a huge role in trans liberation
1: yeah and i think i think something you touched on really resonates with me which is you know establishing the district was really a way of getting trans folks to have a seat at the table at City Hall um, because so many of us were excluded from those conversations, um, were basically denied access to our city officials and city government because we didn't know how to, um, where to even begin to start to have those conversations. And so establishing the, the transgender cultural district helped us to basically demand, we were basically demanding a seat at the table. We were creating our own table, our own side table and, mash, and bashing it into the, the bigger table. Um, and that's that's how the district got started. I mean, we we forced ourselves into the negotiations around the 950 market project. And um, and from then on, I think, have consistently been, you know, uh, a part of the conversation of the continuing sort of evolution of the Tenderloin, something that we've never actually been, actively engaged in. before, Right.
0: Um, yeah. And, and and trans people have never been able to be stakeholders in our own neighborhoods. Um, I think in some ways the district, we get to role model that for other cities around the country. Um, and I think, um, the district gives trans people who otherwise wouldn't have access, um, to that civic engagement or, um, you know, reimagining what the neighborhood could be like for trans people. Now we have that in a way that we didn't have before.
1: What's it like being a Black trans ED?
0: It is very difficult, actually. I, well, I'm not only my Black trans woman ED, I'm also young and career, right? So usually executive directors are like the wizened person in upstairs, right? And so... I'm 30, um, I'm like, I still got it, and I'm doing <laughs> this work. Um, and, and you know, leading an organization at the scale of the Trans District, which is, you know, arguably uh, one of the most visible Black trans-led projects in the world. Like, we get messages from people in other countries all day long about how our work has inspired us for... Uh, for them to develop coalitions, to get an LGBT district or a trans district or, right. you know, what have you. I really struggle with, like, how I'm supposed to be as an ED. And I think I really struggle with being taken seriously as a black trans woman ED. I find that actually uh, most people treat me as if I don't know what I'm doing. And I play into it, right? So um, I was just telling a friend of mine the other day, like, A part of my trick to success was I would let white people just talk to me like I didn't know what I was doing, and I would just play into it and be like, oh, I don't know, can you help me? And then, you know, secretly I'd be like, oh, I already know this. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think in San Francisco, yeah, if you're a black trans woman leader, like, um, you're not fully accepted, even in San Francisco government. as well connected as we are i feel like sometimes i feel like i'm only invited in a table to be a visible sort of token to say Mm -hmm. that the trans community was invited I, i know black trans women eds in other parts of the country um and talk to them regularly and we're like trying to support each other and it's hard it's hard people are not used to let me let me backtrack Cisgender people have had a daily diet in the disparity of trans people. And so people are not used to engaging with a Black trans person who is empowered in themselves and their work. When people do have an interface with Black trans people, it's often as like a service provider and, you know, Black trans people are your clients or attendees of your program or community members doing public comment. They're not used to me saying, these are the policies that I've run and have been signed by the governor, or this is what I want to do for, you know, this fundraising strategy or for that, or they're not, people are not used to that. They don't get to to witness us in in that space. And so um, there's ways in which it can be really difficult being black and a woman and trans and young in a leadership role.
1: But wise but not wise in. Right. <laughs> <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> Let's yeah. just say that there's a lot of mansplaining that happens from the um, the powers that be <laughs> towards right. me. Yeah.
1: No. No, I, I completely hear you. I, I, I think we don't um, I think sit enough with how these like compounding systems of oppressions affect the work that we do, especially as women, as femmes, as black people, as trans people. And then, you know, you have to sort of like pile those on top of each other, like bricks. It's not like you have to choose one in any given moment, right? Um, or you wish you could sometimes. But really, it's it's sort of all at once. And you usually get all the disadvantages and none of the advantages. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's, you know, we should make clear that your impact on San Francisco and um, the larger, I think, transgender uh, community has been incredible. And whether it be through queen culture or through the establishment of the district or through your previous work at St. James Infirmary, that you know, you're know you definitely a an incredible leader and someone uh, to take note of. Thank you. Um, but I know you already know that. So. <laughs> <clears throat> um okay, well, speaking of the district, um, you know, we're I know I'm asking you a lot of personal questions about yourself and your experiences in Tenderloin, but it's all it's all because today we're talking really about the year 1966. Um that's the year that the stud was uh founded, first opened its doors, and it's also the year of the Comptons Cafeteria riots. And, you know, we co founded this district together. Um, and you are now uh, the executive director of this district that in some ways um, really came out of those riots. And so, what I wanna know is, what is your vision for the future of the district?
0: Mm. Um, what is the vision? The vision um, is that, you know, I mean, honey, you remember we used to daydream About what Mm -hmm. a world A would look like with transgender being empowered um, in the tenderloin, Um, and we had those like think tank sessions, and you know we were talking about putting trees, and I was talking about putting pre-op statues and post-op statues. Fully (laughs) functional. Yes. For me, um, my daydream that I just like am married to is that trans people would own our own shit. And that we would be able to own and create our own economy. And since other industries are not proactively hiring us, that we would hire each other, right? And so we would build pipelines of entrepreneurship for trans people uh, from the neighborhood or just trans people who have a connection to what we're doing and have grocery stores and cannabis clubs and you know, art galleries or whatever people want to do, hair salons, you name it. And like, I mean, I know in COVID nineteen, like no one wants to run a hair shop or a nail shop right now, but we will need them after the pandemic's <laughs> over. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, just this idea that um, you know we have and harness can harness the solutions to our disparity. Um, and oftentimes, you know, people are making decisions on our behalf that are not trans and, they, and they're not informed in any way of what solutions we need. And so it just further reinforces, you know, part of why we started the district, that we needed a seat at the table. That's a huge vision. Um, housing. Housing that you would want to live in, that's something I'm always advocating for. Um, you know, too often it's like if there is housing availability, it's like, we're going to put y'all in an SRO. And it's like, well, is it housing you want to live in? Like, if the windows are broken and the ceiling's falling in and there's roaches and bed bugs, you don't want to live in it. And so housing that is nice and comfortable and affirming and, you know, contributes to a trans person's overall wellness, absolutely important. And yeah, finally, another part of the vision is creating, I guess, less so during the pandemic, but we'll see, but really creating an environment that celebrates trans people through events and, like, opportunities to just, like, build camaraderie um, and social space for each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that really resonates with me as well. It's it's this idea that just because folks are, well, well, the definition of being poor and disenfranchised is that you don't get shit, right? right. You get nothing, like you, you should be happy for what you are given through charity. It doesn't matter how bad it is, whatever. Right. Like you just gotta accept it. And I just don't agree with that. I think that just because many of the people who live in the Tenderloin aren't extremely wealthy doesn't mean that they shouldn't have a certain standard of living. Like we all deserve a safe place to live um, and to sleep and places where we can buy healthy food and you know get services or get our hair and nails done um, and also opportunities for employment and for bettering ourselves. Um, And so I think that yeah I totally share that vision and I so glad that you are leading this work. I wanted to uh, spend a few minutes just talking about 1966, you know, bringing us back to the theme of this podcast. The 60s was a really busy decade, there was a lot going on. Um, some of the things that took place in 1966 include um, the civil rights movement, the Cold War, and we were also in the beginnings of Vietnam and ramping up to the space race, uh, full color TVs. Which were filled with images of protests and war and grainy images of our planet taken from orbit. Um, Thousands of anti-war protesters picketed that White House in 1966. The Supreme Court ruling for what we now call Miranda rights took place in that year. The founding of NOW, the National Organization for Women, was in 1966, and the signing of the Freedom of Information Act. So when I read that list, um, does anything come to mind for you? Or do you feel like, you know, we are in similar times now, perhaps? Yeah,
0: I mean, 2020 is an interesting year. It's the first year that we've had a pandemic in over 100 years domestically. Yeah, the year that we will see um, Amy Stevens' case at the Supreme Court Uh, that will decide whether or not it's legal to fire someone Mm -hmm. for being trans Mm -hmm. at their place of employment. Mm -hmm.
1: That's this month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we are definitely seeing, uh, I almost want to say unfortunately, because I feel like we've been here so many times before and yet we are here again, which is demanding justice or demanding equality (laughs) for black people. Um, And, you know, I think throughout the past maybe four years, maybe it's also really linked to Trump's presidency, because I feel like when we were under Obama, there was less, um, I think in general, people felt relatively content under President Obama, but with Trump's blatant um, disregard for, I think, common decency, and even being able to sugarcoat things, uh, and also being very open about the fact that he is willing to roll back civil liberties and undo a lot of the progress that was that was made during the Obama administration, which you know by no means was perfect, but we did make progress. But now, right, with all of this continuing legacy of police brutality, that you know is is again, continuing in a, in a time where we are experiencing a global pandemic, where the economy is collapsing, you know, under our feet, people are home frustrated, poor, and they're watching people be murdered in their, like, in all the time that they have on social media by the people who are supposed to protect them. And so there has been a long buildup over the past four years, We were kind of asleep during Obama for a lot of it. We felt like he was going to take care of things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think white people were content with Obama in a lot of ways. And Black people were too. But, um, you know, you have to remember during the Obama presidency is when we saw, you know, this is partly social media. But this is when we began to see um, Black people being murdered by the state on video on Facebook. Right? right, we didn't have that in two thousand eight, but we did in twenty fourteen, right. in Ferguson. Right, mm-hmm. um, and I think President Obama responded in a way that he knew how, um, but it wasn't it wasn't the response we had hoped, and so he knew how to respond by saying, "Let's come together peacefully and and ask for justice, right, and and let's be united, America, let's be united," which was amazing, right, because. In the absence of that, you know, President Trump does not do that at all. President Trump's response is, "Okay, I'm deploying the National Guard." Right. Um,
1: well, I think with with President Obama, he realized that he was president of everybody, and that part of his job was to calm the American people so that the processes that were in place could help address the problem, and whether that be You know, again, like we were maybe sort of asleep at the wheel because we trusted Obama and because he was so charismatic and so good at his job, right? Um, Even if we felt like he wasn't doing enough, whether it be because he didn't immediately, you know, sign on to gay marriage or because he didn't, you know, adequately address what it's like to be Black in America. Um,
0: But he also couldn't, right? I mean, when when you are the first... Black person, you are sort of in... I mean, you know this, honey. You're the first Black trans person to be elected in the state of California, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked in city government and, and was the only Black trans woman there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know what I mean? Like, when you're the first, unfortunately, there's only so much you can do and advocate because you always have to play the line, you can't be too radical and you can't be too conservative because if you're too conservative, then you're an Uncle Tom, and if you're too, you know, <laughs> outspoken, then you're the angry black person in the room. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's and that I think is really why we don't see a lot of openly progressive black politicians that make it very far. Um, I think Stacey Abrams, obviously, and uh, and other people in the last maybe two years since Trump has been elected, are exceptions to that rule? Or maybe we started breaking that rule in response to Trump. But prior to that, there was a lot of respectability politics that played into um, African-American people who re- were in politics.
0: Yeah, there still is. Like, I, I mean, I'm like, Mayor Breed couldn't just jump out and say, defund police. She had to wait until there was an example from a non-Black politician, right, which would be L.A., to then see if it would be feasible for a metropolitan city. You know, I mean, she's one of the few Black mayors of a city of our size, right? So, in the U.S. There's just yeah. ways in which there it's a blessing and a curse to be the first.
1: Right. I mean, and yeah, those I think that those rules... Have not been abolished, that they still exist. Um, and, you know, I think that Obama, whether by nature or because he knew that that was the only way he could do it, um, did not, was not the champion of the black agenda that I think some of us wish that he could have been. I think he did the best that he could, given, given the,
0: circumstance. the
1: circumstances. Yeah,
0: I agree. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Obama fan, so. I can be critical in
1: some ways, but. Yeah, I think it's fair to be critical of him. I mean, I think I'm also critical of his foreign policy uh, positions and, um, you know, I I don't think that he was an an angel. I think that he is someone that did, you know, America was first and made decisions around that and also had to play the politics of and deal with the politics of being the first black black president. Anyway, all that to say that we are in unprecedented times. And that we are seeing this uh, renaissance of the civil rights movement in a really big way, but specifically for the African-American community. I I don't know. I
0: Well, I mean, I will say that I think this moment is raising awareness on how Black trans people have been excluded. Mm. I've been on interviews all day with media from across the country, you know, specifically talking about how I think this moment is actually elevating, um, the LGBT, um, part in marginalizing trans people. I do. This moment, this moment that we're in right now where Black folks are, you know, leading the conversation on, uh, the sanctity of life for Black people, um, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, pride also kind of fell in and, you know, we're only 10 days in, but already there's been sort of a slight shift in thinking about what pride means and where it comes from. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reality that, you know, non-black LGBT people, they have the liberties and the freedoms that they have because of the labor of black trans people.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: because those are the folks that were targeted by police.
1: Right. Well, those are the folks that were targeted by police. And those are also the folks that all these organizations claim to be serving and put in there. Right.
0: And get funded to serve. Come through. Right. Right. And then they have one black person, one black trans woman outreach worker who's part time at $12 an hour. Girl, do not get me
1: started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. This is why Um, any
0: of these organizations right now that are posting solidarity for Black Lives, I'm like, I want to see a photo of your board, number one. Number two, I want to see how many Black people are in executive leadership. um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want you to say that 10% of your staff is Black and they're, you know, the janitorial staff and and the lay staff at the front desk. I want to see who's making decisions, right? Right, right. Who's right. in that space in decision making?
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we could talk about this all day um, as we as we do. Um, but I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit in acknowledgement of, of pride and also sort of trans people that have come before us and really laid the bricks of the road that we walk upon. Um, I wanted to talk about trans icons that predate the gay liberation movement. Um, So one person, well, first, I I have to say that I kind of actually, when I was thinking about people to include here, um, thought about you because I think you forwarded, forwarded me an article about a black trans woman who was, who existed in like the late 1800s, I wanna say. Oh yes,
0: she's my favorite.
1: Yes. Do you wanna talk about her?
0: Yes, Lucy Hicks Anderson.
1: Who was she?
0: Oh my god, Lucy Hicks Anderson was a (laughs) badass. I live by her. (laughs) She was a black trans woman, um, living in the south. When she was a child, she was taken to uh the doctor by her family, and her family's like she keeps wanting to wear dresses and 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 stuff and and this is not okay like and the doctor was like just let her live just let her mm-hmm. live as she as, as who she is could you imagine being a trans woman in the, a black trans woman in the late 1800s they don't have no. laser hair removal not a hormone not a Revlon color right. say nothing <laughs> right uh, and not a shoe like i mean you have right. to go to a shoe cobbler like think about these things Anyways, in my mind, I imagine her like six foot two and just like really regal. But what she, um, yeah. So she uh, sort of came to public awareness because she married someone who was in the military. And then uh, she got divorced. She owned a brothel. Yeah, she was like a hustling ass bitch. Anyways, so the court the court records, the reason why we have access to that piece of history, is because someone found out that she was trans, and so in the court hearing, she was receiving survivor benefits for her husband, who had died in the war, and she had remarried someone else, right? And the court, the judge was like, uh, uh-uh. Like, you are, you, you are fraudulently getting these resource or the survivor's benefit, Um, because you lied during your marriage application. And she was like, what do you mean? I defy any person telling me that I am not who I am. I'm a woman. I've always lived as as such. And they were Mm -hmm. like, no, um, you lied about your gender on the marriage application. And so it was annulled. And then fast forward, she was, like, exiled from the state that she was in. I think it was in Texas. Like, they told her to leave, never come back. And so she came to California um and she uh spent the last of her life there um you know still owning brothels and 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 doing fringe economy and all the things
1: That is a very empowering story. Um okay, I've got a few others that I have here before me. Um the first is Virginia Prince. So this was a trans woman who was living in San Francisco and Los Angeles in the 1940s, who developed a widespread correspondence network with transgender people throughout Europe and the United States by the 1950s. Um, The next uh, person that I have is Tran Vestia. Uh, In 1952, using Virginia Prince's Correspondence Network for its initial subscription list, a handful of other transgender people in Southern California launched Transvestia, the Journal of the American Society for Equality in Dress, which published two issues. The society that launched the journal also only briefly existed in Southern California. Um, And then of course, there is Christine Jorgensen, an American transgender woman who was the first person to become widely known globally in the United States for having a sex reassignment surgery. After a time in the military, she began surgically transitioning in 1952 in Copenhagen. Returning to the U.S., she became a celebrity after a front-page story on the Daily News.
0: She was was like the Caitlyn Jenner. What was that? that? She was like the Caitlyn Jenner of our... Of her generation. (laughs) Or Caitlyn Jenner is the Christine Jorgensen.
1: I guess so. I mean, I don't know very... I don't know Christine Jorgensen's uh, political leanings. No,
0: it wasn't. So, you know, it was... They both have been very sensationalized, which is why Caitlyn's coming out really reminded me of Christine Jorgensen. Because Christine Jorgensen sort of got off a plane and the media was there and they were like, Oh my god, look at the GI turned bombshell because right. she's platinum blonde, red lips, like she fit sort of the standard of beauty for the 1940s, right? Was it 40s? 50? Uh, 50s? 50s. Mhm. Um and so and yeah, the it, the front page stories were all her before picture and her after photos. Mm. Um, and it was the same with Caitlyn, right? Caitlyn was once known as like one of the world's greatest athletes. It was in the Olympics, sort of representing strength, and and then went on and and gave you you know very Diane Sawyer tees mm-hmm. for her for her Vanity Fair cover.
1: Totally. No, it was. I wonder if that was like that was like a conscious choice that her publicity team made, um, or if it was just a a symptom of the times in which we find ourselves where it was
0: i think it's just i think it was it's the it's the subconscious of of, of people mm-hmm. of cishet people is to sensationalize trans women's bodies
1: yeah that's fair women's in bodies my in opinion general, but then the transformation
0: right because the focus is always like you know if you look at google and you start typing in you know celebrated trans people There's always a suggested search of, like, such and such as a man. And I'm like, hmm, it's so interesting to me. (laughs) Like, people are really obsessed with the transformation. Right. That's why RuPaul's Drag Race is successful.
1: Because of the transformation. I mean, if I have to have somebody ask me one more time if they can photograph me while I'm getting ready, I will. Oh, God.
0: That's, like, the number one... Like, I feel like years ago when I started becoming more visible in my work, photo photographers, journalists, documentary makers, the whole nine, they would always want to film me getting ready. And I'm like, why? And they want to film you specifically putting on makeup. And I think for them, it's like they like to play with this idea of, like, the artificial, that you Mm -hmm. as a trans person are now engaging in, like, deception and artifice and all the mm. things they would never ask us this woman to do that
1: i did want to talk about Carlette brown have you heard about her mm-hmm. yeah um well i will i will read some stuff and let me know if you have stuff you want to add but she was discovered so she discovered that she was intersex during a physical exam she received while serving in the navy during the 1950s After her discharge, she worked as a female impersonator and shake dancer to earn money for gender affirming surgery. Finding that the surgery she needed was not yet legal in the United States. Brown found a surgeon in Denmark where the first SRS was performed in 1952. She soon learned that these operations were only available to Danish citizens, prompting Brown to renounce her U.S. citizenship and apply for citizenship in Denmark which would also allow her to change her legal gender and marry her boyfriend, Sergeant Eugene Martin, who was stationed in Germany. Mm-hmm. Before she could leave the US though, Brown was arrested for cross-dressing, followed by an order to pay back tax money she owed the government. While it is unclear if she ever became what was being dubbed, quote, the first Negro sex change, she remains known for her perseverance, having been quoted by saying, I feel that female impersonators are being denied the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when they are arrested for wearing female clothes. Ooh. Um, yeah, Carlette Brown. Do you have any other tea on her or any other things you wanted to share?
0: I don't, I mean, I had, Another person that I feel like we might have missed. Who? So she, going back to the 1800s, again, this time it was like 1830s. We have Mary the Man Monster. Oh, yes. (laughs) I live for her. (laughs) Um, So what she did, um, the media called her. She created... um, a leather vagina from scratch, fashioned out of leather goods, and she would use it to engage in sex work uh, with her clients. And so, all these like really wealthy white men would like complain to police like their watches were stolen or wallets or what have you. And so, um, when caught, um, they found all these like stolen items that had been reported huh. Um, in her apartment.
1: <clears throat> well, what, what I, what I heard, what I think I remember reading was that many of these were not reported because... Right, because
0: of the fear Uh huh. of it being traced back to her.
1: And I think one person, like, complained, and then when they found her, they found all of these stolen goods. And they found her
0: tea, which and was that they- she was trans, and... Because, okay, so here's the funny thing about sex work. When you do sex work, your clients have to feel like they're safe. As a former sex worker, I have found, I'll use I statements, that you have to make your clients feel safe. So I'm sure that she taunted them with, like, the leather handmade vagina. But I'm sure she also outed herself if if she could, if she gauged that the interest was there. Which is why those clients never reported it to police
1: Mm -hmm. because they were afraid right that someone would call them out on it
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um i'm gonna take it back to the 60s uh well this person was born in 1940 but she's i think one of my favorite cult figures which is jackie shane she performed locally um in in the 50s and 60s uh in long hair and makeup and jewelry In the late 50s, she vowed to escape the Jim Crow South and joined a traveling carnival landing in Ontario in 1959. She relocated to Toronto in 1961 with Frank Motley and his Motley crew as the lead vocalist. She toured the U.S. with the band and spent time in New York, Nashville, and Los Angeles. She scored the number two spot on the Canadian singles chart in 1963 with her silky cover of William Bell's Any Other Way. Throughout most of her career, she was written about as a man wearing women's clothes and even called a drag queen. Speaking to the New York Times in 2017, she said, I was just being me. I never tried to explain myself to anyone. They never explained themselves to me. Her identity as a trans woman was not confirmed on the record by a media outlet until music journalist Elio Yanachi, I hope I've said his name right. Interviewed her for the Globe and Mail in 2017. Do you know Jackie Shane?
0: Yes, yeah, she was a soul singer.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Um and then the next person that I have on here is someone who actually I feel like um Andrea Horn was the first person to tell me about her and that is Sir Lady Java.
0: Yes. I was just talking about her today.
1: Oh yeah. Well she was someone who worked as a performer and female impersonator um, who was based in Los Angeles. And her measurements
0: were she talked about those openly. What was it? She naturally was like I think it's 34, 24, 34 like Mm. natural measurements and she was always like I'm the only one with those measurements. She's still That's alive, right. actually.
1: Really? Mm hmm. I wonder who, if anyone's in contact with her.
0: Mm hmm. Some of the older girls are.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, she. So, back in the 60s, there were basically public decency laws like we had here in San Francisco. Uh, in LA, the city's rule number nine made it illegal to impersonate by means of costume or dress a person of the opposite sex and was used frequently by authorities to break up such shows to arrest gay and trans people for a number of laws used against them. As Sir Lady Java became increasingly popular, packing local bars and clubs to see her performances, authorities began targeting her directly. Recognizing this violation on her civil rights and the impact this had on other local trans people, she fought back, joining forces with the ACLU, Sir Lady Java, took rule number nine to court and brought the LGBT community together through public rallies and protests. While she was not able to get the ordinance struck down because it was determined she didn't have legal standing to file the lawsuit, Sir Lady Java, nonetheless, paved the way for rule number nine to be s- struck down two years later. Wow, we've got such a rich history. I mean, I, we haven't even talked about people like Martha P. Johnson yet, but um, there there oh, is such a rich history. I
0: have one. Who? Tracy Africa.
1: Oh yeah, that's a good one.
0: Um, you remind me of her. Interesting.
1: Okay, I'll take it. She was a model.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Tracy Africa, for those who don't know, black trans woman. Um, she's still alive. Um, she just did World Pride last year uh, with uh, Janet Mock and and Raquel Willis.
1: And she renewed her campaign, right, with uh, Clairol. Yeah,
0: so she was known as the black lady on the Clairol box. So Clairol was, like, the equivalent of, like, L'Oreal. Um, what Like, what L'Oreal and who else is today? Anyway. Right. So, like, if you went to a Walgreens, CBS, um, your grocery store, it didn't matter. You would see boxes of hair dye and hair care products with this lady's face on it. Um, and then, yeah, she's also, she was in Vogue Italia in the 70s and um, Harper's Bazaar in India and was living and, and working as a supermodel. And um, it was actually a gay man, her makeup artist, who outed to the agency that she was trans um, and they fired her um, because she was trans in the 70s. And-
1: mm mm-hmm. I think the story—the story that I heard was that she was at a shoot, and at some point, you know, there was a big fuss that was made, and people whispering, and then you know they basically canceled the shoot and sent everybody home, and she never worked again. Um, which that story seems like that was the storyline for India Moore's character. On That's exactly Poe's.
0: who her storyline. Yeah, on Poe's, Angel's uh, character starts modeling and stuff and, and the character's um, storyline is inspired by Tracy Africa's story.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <sighs> well, we have many, many incredible people that have laid the, the groundwork before us. Um, and luckily we also have you, Aria, to continue to lay the groundwork for the Transgender Cultural District. Um, do you have anything else you wanna say or talk about?
0: Um, Honestly. just that I, um, encourage people to continue to uplift the need for queer and trans spaces, queer and trans nightlife, queer and trans businesses, that we should be aspiring to own the ground underneath us, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the story of so many queer bars and faces like on Charlie's or the stud or gangway, um, is that we struggle because we don't get to own our our buildings and our and our groups and so we Mm -hmm. have to we have to continue to advocate for resources to support queer and trans led businesses to survive in San Francisco because we're the heart of the city yeah I hope that people also look into and investigate the work that we're doing at the trans district and learning more about how you can support or signal boost, or donate, whichever you feel convicted to do. Support our work and and the work of other cultural districts.
1: Thank you so much. Um, And where can they learn more about the Transgender Cultural District?
0: So you can learn more about the Transgender District at www.transgenderdistrictsf.com. And you can follow us on Instagram, at transgender district on Twitter at transgender district and on Facebook at transgender district.
1: Amazing. Aria Saeed, executive director, uh, legendary leader. Yes. Mogul. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to Stud Stories. If you liked this episode and don't want to miss any future Stud Stories, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review us. Your reviews and ratings help keep us up there in the iTunes ranking, which means more rad queers and new listeners can find us. If you really want to support the Stud and help this legendary queer bar find its forever home, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get early access to stud stories, special access to our archival research materials, and more. To get your very own stud sweatshirt, t-shirt, or tank, or to find out about new merch and all the other stud updates, please visit our website studsf.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, since we can't party with you in person right now, we invite you to join us every Saturday at 6:30 p.m. for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, at twitch.tv/dragalive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood, written and produced by Vivienne Forevermore, aka Micah Sigourney, along with production manager and researcher Ben McGrath, and music by Paige Turner. I was your host. Honey Mahogany, stay studly, everyone. Hey, everyone, this is Tara Haywood, one of the producers and the editor of Stud Stories. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and all of our episodes. We loved the interviews we did with Susan Stryker and Aria Saeed for the Compton's Cafeteria Riot so much that we decided to make it into a two-part podcast so today you heard from Arya saeed and we will do the second part of the podcast which is honey mahogany interviewing susan striker that will air on july 1st on our patreon account which is the wednesday after pride thank you all so much and see you then